you're in the uh, danger zone. Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hi everyone, welcome to Thorn in Your Side. I am M. I have got my regular with me tonight, and his name rhymes with Han. Is that even a word, John? It's not too many words that rhyme with John, to be totally honest. Yeah, Bon, Con. Rhymes with Con. Con, John, and Con. Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, spend the whole episode just figuring that out, but perhaps not. Um, welcome, John. Uh, I was just going to share perhaps also as a follow-up to uh, my last episode, which was an introspective that I actually spent a couple of weeks Ubering and um, the proceeds of my Ubering is going towards doing an autism assessment for me in a couple of weeks. So don't know what to make of that because I couldn't get it subsidised, it pretty much had to come out of my pocket. So this is like 800 bucks to do an assessment. Sorry, how much is it? $800. $800 to do an assessment where someone tests you and then yep. says you're autistic? Well, or- this is how high-functioning you are. This is how you feature on the spectrum. Just getting a bit more of an idea of that, but it's not subsidised or anything, not covered by Medicare. Um, I thought, well... I'm going to raise some funds to do it. I might as well just do it for a week. At, at the risk of, of ruining the test, do you know what the test is, what the assessment is, what, what you have to do? Uh, I imagine it's a variety of things where it's like I answer a few questions, I, I'm interviewed, uh, I have to do a few um, puzzly type things that, that you, you can easily find on um, Google Play. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I imagine it's the mix of that stuff. They want me to, to kind of be tested for about three or four hours. Um, I don't know if they give me like an IQ score or whatever, but I don't know. It'll just give me better answers. But there's just a bit of a, a for me, it's an absurdity. Like here I am having to kind of side hustle with the Uber to try to raise up the money to do an assessment in order to kind of advance my own self-health. It's like it's very late capitalism. <laughs> But anyway, uh, story shared, and um, I think that's been me for, I think, the last couple of weeks. Like, I've come back to work and um, kind of telling people who I'm safe with that um, by people think feeling I'm safe with is, like, any rando that's going to listen to this podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to work out my own personal new normal in terms of um, how to be and how to... St- keep healthy and how the world makes sense to me and how I can be productive and add value and still be able to do my thing such as this particular project and I might bring you back in John now that I've kind of gotten the narcissism out of the way it is it is your podcast you you can you can uh you can do that oh cool thank you well I might just switch it off anyway
there's business to be had. Uh, serious business. Now, serious business means... John, have you watched the latest Chip and Dale movie? I have watched the latest Chip and Dale movie streaming on Disney+. Plus. Okay, I actually better preface it because um, like when I just say Chip and Dale, that actually suggests a, a particular group that, um, that other people might think of, particularly if they were around in the 80s. Chippendales, the fantasy that never ends. Um, it's not them, although they were referenced in that movie at one point, interestingly enough. Uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers. So for those that don't know, it was a cartoon, uh, a Disney cartoon when they used to do that in the 90s. In the maybe late 80s, early 90s, is it really? Yeah, it was around that time when Disney just started coming up with a shitload of like Saturday morning cartoons. So it was around that time when you'd have like DuckTales, DuckTales and Darkwing Duck. Darkwing Duck. They actually did a recent reboot of DuckTales, so they kind of brought all those characters back together from the Saturday morning cartoons. Like I remember um, in the latest. DuckTales reboot thing, they actually, one of the bad guys was, um, do you remember Don Carnage from Tailspin? Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was the Saturday morning cartoon where they basically just, like, um, got the, the cast of The Jungle Book and they put him into this, like, noir postmodern thing where everyone just flew planes and they're all anthropomorphic. It was really weird. It was like this 30s futuristic type thing. Um, but anyway, that was a Saturday morning cartoon at the time. And one of the bad guys in there was some dude called Don Carnage. They brought that in, that DuckTales reboot. Fun fact. Principal Skinner, the happiest place on earth is a registered Disneyland copyright. Well, gentlemen, it's just a small podcast. And it's heading for a great big lawsuit. You made a big mistake, Skinner. Well... So did you. You got an ex-Green Beret mad. So anyway, back to the Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie. So we've both watched it and like, I was just expect because I'm, yeah, I mean, given what I've just talked about in the last two minutes, like, I'm just basically still a nerd for this shit. I was just expecting like a reboot of what happened uh, on the show. 30 years ago and they just pick up where they left off but they um introduced this interesting slant on it do you want to comment on it john it kind of reminded me of like um bits of things like wreck it ralph and even as far back as who framed roger rabbit well i guess it it it's that idea of sort of you know remixing it um well it represents it that the tv show was an actual tv show and Chip and Dale were actually actors playing mm. the roles, as were the other the other characters were also actors. Mm. Uh, and then it, yeah. So the so obviously it, it's a story then of of what happens to them after they finish filming it and their lives now as actors in Hollywood. And of course, all those other cartoon uh, cartoons that we enjoyed from our childhood, which I think is probably important, uh, are shown as if yeah, they they were all actors who were playing these roles. So it sort of mixes. Uh, that to tell a bit of a story. 
I'm keeping myself fit and, you know, my updated modern look. Don't you think you'd have more fans here if Chip did these events with you? I hadn't thought about him in a while. I should give him a call. See how life's treating him. Life is the worst. Which is why you need good insurance. <sighs> and so many Easter eggs and inside references. For example, like I mentioned earlier in the episode, the actual Chippendales that was referenced at one point. Like they were, they covered a lot of ground. Well, this this was something you were talking about earlier, which is this idea of of I guess the the popular culture of our childhood mm. um, being remixed, represented, rebooted in movies and TV shows nowadays. Because mm. the other one you want to talk about, which I didn't watch, and and I think you should have freedom to talk about is the Top Gun sequel, which just came out. Yeah. So there's lots of, if it hasn't been done before, it's definitely been happening now. Um, there's a shitload of nostalgia-based stuff coming out, but it's been done in differing ways. Perhaps what we found ourselves talking about here is how it's like it's gone to certain lengths in terms of just recycling old material. Like I imagine with the Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers movie, it's this meta satire thing. But I watched the Top Gun sequel, Top Gun Maverick, and it's referred to as something, and I think media has made this term a thing, I'd say in the last year or two. Anyway, they call it a legacy sequel. And by that, it's it's basically a sequel that's, I mean, when you look at it romantically, it could be like a love letter to the original movie. But a more cynical person would say it you've got a nostalgic audience that would kind of want to kind of remember stuff, like good fond memories of their childhood. So they bring back something 20 years later or even as far back as 50 years later in the case of Mary Poppins, the legacy sequel with Emily Blunt. Now, I actually didn't mind the, the Top Gun movie, but I think that's got a lot to do with Tom Cruise and him being his brand and doing batshit insane stuff. Like, I mean, the, the plot wasn't exactly like um, an intricate Shakespearean ancient Greek layered thing, but in fact, it was a propaganda for US fascist military industrial complex. Well, that's the only way you can get the real jets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, glass half full. It's like it gives you access to all the cool shit, and they definitely took advantage of that because you see all these scenes of them just, like, flying around and taking G-forces. And So a recommendation to all the people listening out there, like, watch it on the biggest screen possible and just turn your brain off and become part of the unconscious opiate-taking mass when watching this movie. So the interesting thing with these legacy sequels is they're not just like we're used to sequels, right? So Jaws comes out, then Jaws two, Jaws three. You know, in you know the next year and the following year, mm. as you say, these are things where they they were important, or maybe not even that important part of, of popular culture of, of our generation, and then they get redone. You know, it sort of reminds me a little bit. I think there's different types of them. Like there's a bit like you know Family Guy. Of course, I used to joke with my students. I'd go, "Who he hasn't watched Star Wars." And they would put their hands up. This was obviously before the legacy sequels in Star Wars. And I, I would say... Trilogy. Yeah, if you haven't watched Star Wars, how do you get the jokes in Family Guy? Like, they're all references to to that form of popular culture. <laughs> so we've had that for a while. And there's some that are, you know, just a commentary on that, like the Chip and Dale one. Like, I don't, that's not finding, I think, a new audience. 
it's not rebooting the franchise. It's just simply a, a, a commentary that you really need to know all those characters to get those jokes, right? It's, it's really written for us to enjoy. And, and a very savvy audience as well because um, it was actually, like it's a bit of a, a, an undiscovered thing, I think, in that there's a sophistication about it. Like, for example, like they play on the fact that out of the two chipmunks, Chip is the button-down, responsible one, whereas Dale basically does the cartoon character version of Botox and plastic surgery, and he re-renders himself as a CGI figure. So it kind of plays upon celebrity and that's where I come up with this idea of it being this like meta-satire thing, which I reckon is like this going to be this other way of like recycling old material for a nostalgic audience like we've talked about the legacy sequel talked about what chip and dale's gonna do or, or has done my money is on you know that like that new super mario brothers movie they're gonna do i reckon it's gonna be like that which also reminds me as well like uh, that was also one cool thing about chip and dale as well it's like they brought back the um abomination of sonic the hedgehog you know how they were going to do that 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 version of sonic before there was basically like a big fan backlash yeah they played on that as well and i thought that was really smart you know they know their audience too well and it's scary so that's what right that clearly is an audience a nostalgic audience and i think it's probably you know maybe they'll make another one or whatever but some of these legacy sequels are about restarting a franchise for a new generation. So this is one of the arguments that you might say Star Wars struggled with in that they were trying to serve two masters at the same time. They were trying to say, hey, you know, you fans who watched it in the 70s and 80s, you know, here's some more stuff for you. And then also, hey, young kids, here's a new Star Wars just for you. And whether or not they could keep both those fan bases happy at the same time. But you can see, right, we've, we've moved away, and this is maybe where Tom Cruise is the exception, we've moved away from that idea of the movie star as, as the central piece to these franchises, and, and that's what's going to make, uh, make the big studios like Disney uh, lots and lots of money. Well, maybe that's what Tom Cruise is. Like, he's that last bastion of the old movie world where he's that last real Hollywood star, but... He's had to work really hard at it. Like, in reality, he's got this reputation to be this intense control freak. This is the last question. Who is this? This is Flaming Dragon! Okay, Flaming Dragon. Fuck face. First, take a big step back and literally fuck your own face! Now, I don't know what kind of pan-Pacific bullshit power play you're trying to pull here, but Asia Jack is my territory. So whatever you're thinking, you better think again. Otherwise, I'm going to have to head down there, and I will rain down on a godly fucking firestorm upon you. You're going to have to call the fucking United Nations and get a fucking binding resolution to keep me from fucking destroying you. I am talking scorched earth, motherfucker. I will massacre you. I will fuck you up! Being Scientologist, you look at someone and you know absolutely that you can help them. It's not how to run from an SP. It's PTSSP, how to shatter suppression, confront shatter suppression. You apply it, it's like boom. Being a Scientologist, when you drive past an accident, it's not like anyone else. As you drive past, you know you have to do something about it because you know you're the only one that can really help. Whatever the case, this helps suggest that Cruz isn't playing with a full deck. Um, so I think he's kind of the guy who's rich enough and crazy enough to basically shape the world around him rather than how 
the average person kind of needs to respond to the world. But by doing what he's done, he's become his own brand, like he's become his own Disney. I think that's what Top Gun Maverick, a lot of that was all about. Everyone just kind of wanted to watch that because that's, that's pretty much still remains his signature role in many ways, despite everything that he's done. It's that every man dude that uh, is able to be a rebel within a very structured fascist US military. Which maybe in some ways actually separates Top Gun from all these other legacy sequels in that these other legacy sequels seem to be about spitting off that intellectual property to keep make money out of it. I mean, you can argue that the Marvel movies have that a little bit too because the intellectual property of all the comics, uh, you know, and all the stories that are there, they can use that. So, because the the Tom the Top Gun movie doesn't set up another sequel, does it? And it doesn't, you know, take the story any further. It's it's just that movie again, isn't it? It's just everything you loved about the first movie. Here it is again. Yeah. Uh, kudos to Miles Teller, who um, basically just is a clone of Goose. Like in the movie, he's supposed to be like um, Goose's son, but I don't know. So you see him, and they've basically just—it's like he's playing Goose in cosplay. He's a very underrated actor. I don't know. I think he failed during that Fantastic Four movie, although he was good in Whiplash. You watch Whiplash? I haven't seen Whiplash. Yeah, watch watch Whiplash, everyone. That um that that is a, a good study in um, workplace abuse. It's also got um JJ Simmons He's pretty playing awesome. the abuser. Um, and if people like jazz as well, watch Whiplash. Anyway, that's a different angle I think upon how they're they're taking, I'd say, colonizing and monetizing a, a captured market, the recycling of old material in this way through legacy sequels and also what I'm anticipating through meta satire. What we were going to do for the remainder of the episode was to recap on a couple of things that we've been talking about, John and I, in recent episodes, as um, I've made the comeback into this podcast project. They're basically like Dakgate and Slapgate. Mm. Um, if people can recall what uh, we've been discussing, we did Dakgate a couple of episodes ago. We did, I don't know, do we end up doing Slapgate? That was the one just before it, wasn't it? We did, yeah, we did that a while ago. Yeah. And I remember what you were saying, like, particularly with Slapgate, is that we need to revisit these to see where things have progressed. We can kind of treat it as a longitudinal study, as it were. So um, what do you want to do first? Let's do Slapgate because I think that's probably um, less interesting than the election result. Previously on... Do it in your side. Keep my wife's name out your fucking... So my... Like I I big into Gramsci and Hegemony and what I'm always interested in is, you know, the idea that there's a crisis and... and, um, the, the subaltons of the ruling class have to, to, to marshal around it and, and, and make sure that um, the ruling class's ideology stays in place, right? So I've always found this interesting because Gramsci talked about it from the point of view that, that the, the working class would organise, but sometimes these things cut across society and they can challenge you know, different aspects, values and norms of our society. 
So when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars, I thought, oh, this is going to be a really interesting thing because you could already see people polarising and, and taking either side, you know, people who were saying, yes, this was a good thing, this was a bad thing. And I was interested to see what would happen, you know, would this end up being some sort of commentary? Um, would there be a, a resolution where we all fall on one side? And where I was coming from as well was that it reintroduced the everyday banter about stuff that's happening in the world yep. um, without any fear of, oh, is this like a potential apocalyptic event that's unfolding? They, they, that's right. This is this is safer to talk about than, than yeah, the impending climate doom or the virus that's going to kill us all. And it was interesting, right? There was... You know, the, the, these polarised positions, there was some interesting commentary coming out, you know, for Will Smith. Then, you know, more of the narrative came out, you know, more footage came out. And then there was a lot of people who just said, I'm over it and, and moved on. And I think that's sort of where we got to. Like, I, I think it sort of petered out a little bit. Well, he, um, he, he got booted out of the Oscars. He, he made his apologies. I remember Jada Pinkett Smith said a few things. But I, I don't know, like, if you want to an, a, analyse how much life it had, I think you kind of did already in that yeah. it didn't have much life. It didn't have as much life as we predicted. But I do think, though, that something else kind of replaced that, um, that kind of filled that space, and that was the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard bullshit. <laughs> Michael, I, 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 I was holding that back in not going to say that in the hope that I think where I saw Slapgate, I thought, look, this might in, end up into being a commentary about, you know, violence, um, you know, might be uh, into a commentary about, you know, agency and defending women and all this could have went in really interesting ways. I think what happened with that, too, is there was a lot of um, pro Will Smith stuff that came out that talked about, you know, him being traumatized and. You know, Samantha Maiden wrote something which basically, um, you know, put into the narrative that that you know he he had been traumatized by, you know, that his mother had been abused and and everything, and, and that put that context around it, which I think really protected him somewhat and gave some sort of explanation. And then, of course, stories came out about Chris Rock being bullied as a kid, and you know all that. And so, and it's, he may or may not be on the autism spectrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was some really interesting stuff that came out there, but then it just sort of petered out and I think you're right the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing then has come out and then that's made some really interesting commentary I mean it's been again the same thing is happening right there's this public event people are taking these sides you know it seems to be not so much about what was actually happening in the court case but what the broader meaning for this would be about violence against women you know women being believed false accusations and it just sort of again polarized around those those two things See, the, the trend I'm seeing here is that, like, celebrities are doing shenanigans and hijinks. Maybe that might be a bit arrogant to say. Like, I mean, both what they both have gone through is kind of, like, full-on shit in many ways. But I, I'm a bit bemused at how and what these two stories have done is that they've kind of used celebdom as this template for us to kind of have a bit of a think about where things are at in society as it's easy enough to deduce like celebrities just basically live in their own world i mean some of the shit that came out of the testimonies and the 
what was it with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard? It was like a defamation, then a counter-defamation. Um, some of the stuff, whether it's true or whether it's not, it's like uh, it's probably inspiring like a thousand Netflix writers to, to do some sort of quasi-series, you know? So that's why I'm wondering what's going to happen next. Like when's the, when's the next kind of event going to come up where it's like, oh, use celebrities again to kind of teach us about the world. And that's the question, whether they're actually teaching us anything or whether it's, you know, actually doing the, the opposite and making things worse. And certainly that's some of the arguments that I'm seeing that it basically some of the articles I was reading was sort of ignoring the court case and just saying, look, this is taking, you know, women being victims of violence and being believed back years and years. Um, but again, the commentary was was not so much legal commentary about what's actually happening in the case, but how this is being broadcast and, and how what does this mean to these concepts in our society in, in general. So it was interesting to see that. And certainly it was interesting because then people were having conversations about domestic violence within that lens and that context of, of do you like Johnny Depp or do you like Amber Heard? What do... um. Sorry, John, to just totally dismiss your last comment there, but um, what is it that the right-wing people like to blather on about? Is it referred to as the Overton window? I'm not sure. Should we, uh, should we search? <laughs> I'm going to do a search, which Overton in reality it takes 10 minutes, but thanks to the magic of editing, it will be a matter of seconds. We can make it sound like we knew exactly what the Overton window was. Yeah, nah. I've got the term right. Okay, tell me, what is it? What, what is it? So the Overton window is the range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream population at a given time. It is also known as the window of discourse. Now, I say that this is like a tool that's a domain of the right because they've done a few mainstreamy things um, and I think this is where Trump has come in handy and people like Pete Evans where if things are at a mainstream level and they're mainstreamy enough you can introduce some of the wacky again referring to Dave Eden's uh, term Dave you got to write something and publish something just saying uh, the cosmic right where there's like this like plethora of out there fascist ideas across a variety of themes and approaches, um, but it's it's used, but they access a mainstream platform to be able to present it to as wide a range of people as possible. And you're also seeing, I, I think, another leading example of that is like all the anti-vax views that suddenly came out of the tree, particularly during lockdown and the freedom rallies and all that sort of stuff as well. So that's basically what the Overton window is about, like how you can bring all this stuff into the mainstream and, and try and work out what the acceptable window is. And maybe just going back to what we were talking about before with our, um, with our movies, um, they've got their own Overton window as well. Like what is, what's an acceptable way of returning back to nostalgia? That's an acceptable way of, um, of recycling the, the pop culture shit for us, you know? Well, I think that's right. That's a really an interesting concept because you see there's been so much work being done to try and and make sure the narrative or, or, or the discourse is that women should be believed, right? And a lot of focus on, you know, this woman said she was, um, you know, 
getting um, uh, getting threatened by her partner. No one believed her. Police didn't do anything. Now she's dead. See, we should have believed her. So there's been a lot of focus on that and a lot of examples of that, which is really been trying to widen that that sort of and, and say it's a myth that women make up allegations, right? That now has opened up that discourse again and said, well, now we can have a conversation about, you know, do women um, make up these, these uh, fabricate these allegations? Uh, and, and regardless of what actually legally happened, that's what that court case has enabled people to do and talk about, talk about that through talking about Amber Heard. Yeah, and you've got your Joe Rogans as well and your MRAs and your Stormfront acolytes going, the Me Too movement is now officially over. And, and it's, this is, it's a very good point, right, because this is a mainstream conversation. Having a conversation about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard is not some wacky right-wing, you know, side thing. This, this is mainstream newspaper talk conversation, which obviously leads into those, those bigger things about, you know, domestic violence. So have we just, like, inadvertently just come up with a model on why this could potentially just keep happening, like celebrities doing shenanigans and then all of a sudden we're, we're kind of made to try to intellectualise it? Well, I think it would have been interesting, and I, I don't have the capacity to do it, but to think, okay, why, or work out why was the slap with Smith and Chris Rock, that that seemed to burn really hot for a moment and it seemed like it was going to be a conversation about violence and, you know, but then petered out mm. and and it hasn't really, and maybe it's, it's, I mean, in 12 months' time it's going to come back because there will be another Oscars and then we're going to talk about it again. And again, but seeing Amber Heard and Johnny Depp seems to have had that effect. You know, it seems to have now enabled people to to, to question the legitimacy of, of, of women making allegations. Mm. And whether, again, is that going to burn hot and then we're going to move on or, or is this going to have a more lasting effect? Because I can clearly see there's lots of, of um, left-wingers and, and, and feminists online who have identified this as a real danger, who are not so much writing about the court case itself, but writing about the reaction to the court case and, and how dangerous it is that, you know, this has enabled people to to say uh, these sort of things again and, and provide some, some sort of evidence. So because of what we've just done, John, do we have to keep doing like a longitudinal on Slapgate? Well, look, I think if it comes up again, we should mention it. Like, I think the next Oscars, it'll come out. I imagine if Chris Rock ends up doing something about it, it will come out. Like, Will Smith will eventually do something more about it. Mm. But whether, and whether that's actually part of the tactic here, thinking again from a PR perspective, that both of them have stepped away. They didn't, you know, they haven't made much commentary on it. They've let it, like, you know, sit in the background. Mm. So that later on when they bring it forward, they'll be able to control the narrative a little bit more about it. Or they could just do a legacy sequel to the legacy sequel of Bad Boys for Life and they bring in Chris Rock as the third wheel. It's always an option. Mm. Mm. Our last item on the agenda is that gate, the aftermath. Previously on... Do it in your side. Or most importantly, what really happened at the Engadine McDonald's in 1997. It will remain the mystery of the ages. So should we refresh where we were? Because obviously 
we recorded that episode before the election. Yeah. And we rushed to record it. We'd been talking about it for a long time and we wanted to record it and we thought, look, we better record it before the election because, you know, maybe he loses. But I remember when I listened back to that episode, there was a fear in me that I kept kept thinking, this guy's a fraud. You know, we talked about, you know, the game. Um, But there was a fear in me that maybe this guy's going to win. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, when I say guy, I'm, I'm clearly referring to Scott Morrison. Yeah, the man who shall not be named. Yeah, I, I, on election night, I what was I doing? Like, I think oh, I wasn't Ubering. I think I actually went to the gym. Yeah, I was at the gym. And then I was kind of watching, like, the stuff on the gym TVs. And um, it was kind of doing, like, a pretty, pretty intensive workout, like, aerobic thing. And I was kind of watching how things were happening at the start. Yeah. And I'm surprised you're doing an aerobic workout and I'm imagining dance music, but in fact, what was on the screen was the election. Is that correct? <laughs> correct. And it was kind of, I kind of had the the GBs because I was kind of watching it. It was actually starting off the way it kind of did three years ago where yeah. it was like, this wasn't part of what was supposed to happen. But then as it should have happened like three years ago, if, but then, then there was this like rebalance and then elbow one. Yeah, yeah, like uh, the first hour or so while I was at the gym, I was kind of, eh, I better finish my workout. Yeah, uh, the I think the fears that I guess you and I shared kind of went away a little while later. I, I had a similar experience. So I think I might have mentioned we voted early because we were going to a kid's birthday, a, a, a good friend of ours that I hadn't seen in a while, which was great. So we had a fantastic day on election day at this kid's birthday party. Uh, and then we're driving back from country New South Wales. And uh, as my wife was driving, I started looking at the early results. And I had the, you know, I'm just looking at the ABC website and I'm starting to freak out. You know, those coalition seats, you know, come in pretty quick. And then I got home, sat there in front of uh, the ABC and I was watching it and obviously was quite nervous at first. The ABC coverage didn't help. Uh, i got to say, because Tenya Plebisek was there and it's clear that Labor were winning, but yeah. the ABC coverage was a little bit like, okay, uh, Tenya, what's went wrong? And obviously Tenya can't say, fuck you, we just won, because she has to wait for Anthony Albanese to, to make that announcement, and it did take. But it was clear that, and, and, and it's one of the things that it really annoys me when I see people talking about the election, the one takeaway should be the Australian public totally rejected the coalition like people voted they may not have all voted for labor and certainly the greens um did well you know there's the the teal independence but people were voting against the coalition in 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 electorates voting strategically to ensure that the coalition candidate didn't win like it seemed to be an absolute rejection of uh scott morrison Mm, And I think all the stuff that we were kind of unpacking in that episode, uh, I think there was some evidence of a cottoning on to the construction of things. People were kind of seeing the the idiot behind the emerald curtain, I think. And one thing that I've kind of noticed as well, and I might even put a link or two on this episode, is that there has been some post-election character studies of Scott Morrison to the point where there has been some quotes where Bibbs, I mean, they haven't put their name to the quote, you know, for obvious reasons, but liberal 
no pun intended, but liberal reference of the guy being referred to as a literal fuckwit, a guy caught up in his own narcissism about being the ultimate campaigner. But on this occasion, <laughs> the universe corrected itself and things just went tits up for him. And once again, another myth was shattered. He's not the ultimate campaigner. He's just the guy that I think finally enough people realised that he was giving away all these lemons and they weren't exactly lemonade or cars or wherever I was going with that metaphor. It really did feel like people had made up their minds about him a while ago and, and his, the campaign didn't change anyone's minds. The people who liked him liked him and the people who had turned against him and, and didn't think much of him still didn't think much of him. Mm. And then it was interesting that people, you know, went... They thought about how to vote in this election and they thought about how do they vote in a way that ensures that his government isn't returned. That is interesting. So you can see Labor Party voters voting for independent candidates where that, that's the chance of success. You can see, you know, people voting, um, not prepared to vote for Labor, but voting for the Greens. You know, these, these different things happening in different elections. But all the thing that's in common is, is it, it was against the coalition. It really, it really was against... Um, and obviously Scott Morrison won his own electorate, but certainly you can see, you know, these other, and certainly these electorates where there was what we, I guess we call liberal liberals, you know, wet liberals were the ones that really, really got smashed. It truly was a battle of the middle class in this election. And you saw it carried out because middle class social democratic voters who feel justice in the world through the democratic right to vote felt a sense of security because there seemed to be a plethora of options. And by plethora, I mean the teal option. And that was kind of expressed. Um, and also, I, I would also lump the Greens in there as well um, because I, I still don't think the Greens are actually presenting themselves as a working-class-centred party. They still present themselves as a party for everyone albeit with the progressive platforms. But that's where the election seemed to be particularly centred and that's how things were undertaken. Like it was, the middle class was the bellwether for working people and the working class vote. That's where my concern is because that's where you saw a particular fracture and looking at this at an electoral basis, it, it really does play itself out from left to right and thereabouts. Um, lots of people being rusted on labour rights and, of course, there's also the criticism that labour has effectively abandoned their working-class electorates or took them too much for granted. I mean, the Christina Keneally example was probably a sound example there. But you're also seeing the rise of votes, uh, rise of percentages for things like Clive Palmer... Uh, One Nation, whatever other right-wing micro-parties there were. So it was just, it was, um, it's like a cascade. So you take the middle class out of the equation, you take the um, the aspirational vote out of the equation. If we go back to that old-fashioned model of class, disadvantaged class, and people trying to use their vote to try to remedy the situation, that's all been, in my words, I suppose, fragmented and disintegrated now. I think what was happening is that people who would usually vote for the Liberals and had voted for the Liberals in the past turned against them. In, in those 
seats, you know, in eastern suburbs of, of, of Sydney, you know, around the harbour, the North Shore, who, like, nothing much happened on the ride. Like, One Nation didn't do anything. In fact, they went backwards. Um, Palmer, United Australia Party, really didn't have the impact that, that they thought they were going to have. I mean, part of the problem is with a protest vote is when people do a protest vote, they tell everyone they're going to fucking do it, right? So they're on the polls, they're taking uh, their flyers, they're singing and dancing about it, but the other people who are going to vote for for Labor or Liberal or, you know, the Teals or Greens, like they don't make a big song and dance about what they vote, they just go and vote. So the, uh, Palmer saw that, that, thought they had this huge big support, but they didn't, right? So on the right, nothing much happened. Um, what... You know, Labor had their Labor vote. They didn't lose their their, their working class electorate. So the working class electorates didn't, definitely didn't go over to Liberals, which is supposedly what Morrison thought he would do by bringing Deves into Warringah, which is just nuts. And I think we called it nuts at the time. Well, you know, the master campaigner did it again. So it was the Liberals. It was Liberal voters turning against the Liberals. That's what it was about. They lost their own people. And their own people have now went to these independents and, and they may not come back now. It's no longer the broad church if it ever was. I, and I, the thing that kind of gave me a, a sense of um, masochistic pride as well is seeing all the Sky News people just like literally bursting into tears because they saw that their power base, their platform to talk about crazy things is now gone. G'day, good evening. Our laser-like focus is 1,000 days to take the country back from the mad left. <laughs> it's actually 1,069. I added it up today. Well, this is, we're now left with this right-wing Liberal Party that, that you could argue is unelectable. Like, they're not going... On. And they doubled down on it as well. Like, well, what, I mean, what else got, could... They brought in Peter Dutton and that they, they've still... And they've, Continued the rhetoric, except he's been told to smile a bit more. What else can they do? This is who this is who they got left. Like they lost, they lost their moderates. Their moderates are gone. They are left only. And now, you know, the problem is the right's going to celebrate because the the right's in. They've got to realise you needed those moderates to win these electorates. You you now are so right that you're not going to bring over any Labor voters. The Labor voters have not run to the right as as. You know, I think maybe, you know, we talked about John Howard's battlers. Like, we're not seeing, I think, that. So, I mean, I'd, I'd said the Liberal Party needs some some time in the wilderness and it needs time in the wilderness, but it also needs to now work out, okay, what is it going to do? The right, the, the, the party that's in there now needs to realise that they can't be elected. They can't win. If they're all right wing, they can't win. They need They need those moderates. But how are they going to get them now? If there's enough of them that realise that um, that the gravy train um, has now run out of track, maybe that's what will prompt them. And those moderates, I think, is where the talent was in the Liberal Party. I, I, I think there isn't the same level of talent on the right. You know, there's a couple of very good politicians there, but they just don't have the same level. They end up saying dumb things. And that's what I think we're seeing now. We're going to see them say a lot of dumb things. Um and something's going to have to happen. I mean, look at what's happened. We now have, what, have a, a Labor government federally. I mean, the state's a majority Labor. Like, it's really the Liberal Party's in a lot of trouble. Maybe it is what happened. can't remember the exact year or not. But remember, like, the old United Australia Party? I think it might have been around just after World War Two or something, where they kind of realised that they're still, they're, they're a little bit too white supremacist. 
for the general population. They had to reinvent themselves and then Menzies did it and then they had basically that long government, mm. which for me kind of, they kind of um, exploited or took advantage of an emerging urban Australian middle class, suburban middle class rather. But that's another podcast episode in itself. But maybe that's that could be potentially what's going to have to happen again for them. But maybe that's another another UAP moment for them. Maybe they need another Menzies type thing to happen. Who knows? Or maybe they might just wither away and die. Who knows? Um, I, I, yeah, I don't predict politics anymore. Like I reckon anything can happen these days. I mean, for me, anything and everything has happened for me personally. So <laughs> I think it's going to be interesting to see politicians of both sides what they take from Scott Morrison's term as, as, as Prime Minister. Are they going to see that he actually did some things really well and, and are going to emulate them? Or is this, like, and I think this is probably where it more is, a total rejection of, of his approach to politics? Oh, well, I think he's been um, cast out on all sides. He's been exposed as the sham except for his Facebook page where he continues to get a whole bunch of likes because he goes, goes sharks. Is he still posting anything? Like, is he... Yeah, yeah, I, I checked it out, like, um, about a week or so after the election result, and, um, yeah, he said that um, he'll still be there to watch the Sharks play and up, up the Sharks. Way to go, mate. You're still in there with us. Well, that was part of my prediction, wasn't it, that once he loses, how long is it before, you know, he drifts away from the Shire? How long is it before, you know, he no longer turns up to Shark games? Yeah. How, how much of that persona was for that role and that yeah. now that he doesn't have that role, how much will that persona move on? I think, and, and actually I thought about this because we talked about, you know, there's there's this concept in, in psychology, high and low self-monitors. So all of us are conscious of how we project ourselves. Some of us are more conscious than others or, or and, and we're more reactive. So, you know, now he's, but we don't feel inconsistent with that. So I think we will see him drift away from, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, the local member. I mean, there's lots of talk that he's on his way out and he's going to quit, although he said he, he wouldn't do it, but there's already been rumours that he's looking for a way out. Yeah, he's um, getting his golden parachute prepared, you know, being the CEO of um, Pizza Hut. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it will be, in, it, it, in some level, it will be interesting and now safely interesting because I don't give a fuck what happens to him. You know that that what where where's he going to go and what's he going to do? You know, and and who is he going to become? That's going to be very interesting. Okay, well let's let's look at it in about six months' time and then spend five minutes on it. Do you think so? The rumor, all right. He's he's the he's the and I'm not a gambling person. Will he stay as the local member for at least twelve months after the election, or will he leave before that? I reckon he'll do what kind of something similar to what Kevin Rudd did um, when he lost the election to Tony Abbott. Like he'll hang around for a bit, try and sniff out any possibilities, try and see if he can be like a Bill Shorten type and just stick around, or um, he'll find out that the jig is up and then he'll do like a big fire and brimstone goodbye speech to everyone. Actually, it might necessarily be in Parliament. It might be at um at Hillsong. Do you think? Do you Before think he, he do his goodbye speech? Do, so you you think he's not going to do a Bill Shorten and hang out? He's he's on his way out. He will leave. Look, I mean, there was some 
cosmic rebalancing that happened in the election. I don't know if the cosmic rebalancing will continue. If it does, I'm hoping he does his Hillsong goodbye speech. But like I said, man, like I can't guess these things anymore. Well, he did do a goodbye speech at his church. Yeah. After he lost, he did go up there and, and do a speech and, you know, was a bit emotional about it. So he sort of... Well, maybe that, like, what we can count on is that if he's going to say anything publicly, he's going to make sure he's in front of an audience at 100% on his side. Like, yeah, he did that at his evangelicals, you know. This wasn't in Parliament. This wasn't in a press conference. This was in a place that was safe for him. I suggest right on 12 months he will leave and he will leave because he will say, I've got this amazing offer to do something great for people, you know, and it'll be some, you know, quasi-religious charity or something that he'll go and lead. I don't don't think he's going to go into the corporate world. I don't know if he's going to be that welcome in the corporate world. Is there, like, religious fast food? Oh, as as in, you know, they get the wafers ready really quickly or something or, you know, communion is pretty quick. I mean, it depends on what Catholic... No, I've got to be careful with that because there is technically religious fast food, for example, like halal... Like a, your halal snack pack, right? But I'm talking about like um, the the waspy evangelical stuff. You, do you reckon oh. there's like the Chick Wasp Fil- McDonald's? Chick Fil A in the US is um, uh, you know, a fast food outlet that I'm pretty sure doesn't open on Sundays because of the religious beliefs of their owners. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's something I might give to the to our audience. Um, so you you think you think fast food religion together is his future you've said this many times yeah i reckon that's going to be his next miracle he's going to be the ceo of that like waspies or something i don't know i can see him being like the the chancellor of a of a religious college ah something like that where he'll say you know i'm going to do this thing and it's really giving and you know okay but something like that some sort of you know religious charity not not charity that not not a religious not for profit, not a charity. I would say I don't yeah, think like he's Hillsong particularly could, going to be helping poor people. Yeah, Hillsong could splinter off into its own education sector. Like they could do. Remember, like what the Ultimate Warrior did and tried to set up his own university. Oh really? <laughs> Warrior man here, and you know any academic institution can help you fulfill prerequisites, obtain a degree. But how many can prepare you to fulfill a dream? At Warrior University, you and me together can do just that. The testimonial on my life says that you, yes you, have the same exact chance of achieving your dreams as I did. If you really believe it, if you have the deep felt desire to discipline yourself to make the true sacrifices, the door to Warrior University could quite possibly lead into the dressing rooms of the WWF superstars. How do we how do we drop this at the end of the end at the end of the podcast? How did we not? How was this podcast not about the time the Ultimate Warrior tried to start his own university? And was it a religious university? Because the 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 um, Ultimate Warrior was a little bit a little bit Christian. Um, he was a conservative prick, but uh, oh man. Again, another, this could be its own self-contained podcast. Um, and uh, we're getting close to wrapping things up. But let's see if I can do this in 30 seconds. Um, basically, uh, Ultimate Warrior, his real name's Jim Helwig, I think. Helwig, Selwig. Right. 
Um, he legally changed his name so it could be Warrior. And by doing that, he was able to claim ownership on any intellectual property or any commercial projects he got into um, where he could freely use the Warrior title. So he wouldn't be constantly clashing with people like Vince McMahon and WWE and whoever, whatever other big wrestling companies he ended up with. I think he was with WCW for a while there, wasn't he? So he did that. And then one product of that was, um, was basically creating Warrior University. So I think, and this might be a bizarre way to wrap up this episode, maybe that was some, some, some nightmare fuel that inspired Tom Cruise. It's like this was, he was a guy that tried to create his own brand. Warrior failed dismally. In fact, his body basically couldn't... <laughs> his ego signed checks that his body couldn't cash. And I'm saying that in a very dark, ironic, empathetic way because um, basically the Ultimate Warrior died at the age of 54 um, because of prolonged steroid abuse. But Tom Cruise is still around. So, yeah, maybe Tom Cruise took on the ideas of the Ultimate Warrior but was able to kind of physically keep himself in good enough shape to, to realise... The warrior's dream. I wonder if there's anyone out there with a bachelor's degree from Warrior University. Oh yeah, if anyone out there knows about that, um, it means it means the university would have had to have gone for at least three or four years so someone could graduate. But um, you know what? I'm going to look into it. I'll find out. I'll have an answer. Well, I put this out to the audience as well. So two things now: find out if there's like an evangelical fast food chain out there, um, and also if there's actually been any um, Warrior University alumnus. Alumni, yeah, that's the plural. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised with just one dude. <laughs> All right, I think that's a good way of winding it up. I think we've come around full circle. Oh, I think we've solved all the world's issues. Yeah. Um, again, again, in a tight, uh, tight podcast. Well, it's not every podcast where I'm able to draw parallels between Tom Cruise and the Ultimate Warrior, so I'm giving myself a pat in the back. So well done, Em. All right. Well, thank you very much, John. It's been great. Um, we'll come back to that gate again in about, what was it, a year? All right, yeah, 12 months. Let's see. Let's see what, what happens to our mate, Scott. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, we will continue to endeavour trying to follow up on all the stuff that we've been discussing in previous episodes. Um, we still got it on the back burner. Um, and as I make my own personal return to the podcastness. All right. Thanks, everyone. Catch you later. Bye. Stay safe. I'm going to bring up this story and then I'm going to close this bit off this particular segment of our episode. Like, um, I want to know if they've got this line. Now that, that I remember with the action figure, like, and that was the interesting thing about T Thundercats as well. Like, I remember when they came out, they had different types of figurines. So, Pobo families, they could get like the Yay High size one, like the G.I. Joe size one. For your middle class consumers, you could actually get the, the, were they like 12 foot 12 inch yep. 12 feet 12 inch size and then you'd have all the toys and all of that sort of thing as well and oh yeah you'd even have those stamp size miniatures where it was just plastic things which weren't opposable or anything but yeah so basically like small medium large and that was a good thing about thundercats in many ways it was a quasi consumer socialism about it
Anyway, I digress. Uh, like the middle class lion, no. What I particularly remembered about him was that, like, he had like this section at the back, and it was uh, you had this ring. And you just like you basically stuck the ring into the the small of his back, and then his eyes lit up. Remember that? I don't, I don't remember that, but I can see that. Not only do you remember that, you remember that very fondly. Did so, do you did you have one or did you not have one? I actually remember the like what I the way I can remember it vividly is because I I don't know whether this has actually um, caused me some damage later on in life, but um, I remember the actual ring thing. It's yeah. like I used to lick it. And it was, oh. like, really acidic. <laughs> but it still worked. His eyes would light up on something. But it was like, I was getting hooked on it. I was like, wow. Yeah, I'm a, like, I was basically licking a battery. Yeah. That's basically what the ring was, like a, a, a plastic battery. And I was just kind of doing that. And then, eh, his eyes would light up. <laughs> <laughs>